Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. You're listening to Triple R, the show is Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg. The Australian Vocals Literary Award is a $20,000 prize awarded to an unpublished manuscript by an author under the age of 35. This year's winner, Emma Batchelor, won for her manuscript, Now That I See You, a work of autofiction drawing heavily on the tumultuous end of her relationship bound up with her former partner's transition. In a video message following the announcement that she was this year's winner, The author explained that the work was, in her words, inspired by my lived experience as a partner of someone who is unpacking and reconciling with their gender identity and expression. It's about relationships, gender, sexuality, grief, mental health. But what I was particularly interested in exploring was how those things intersect with and impact on love. Emma Batchelor joins me now to talk about her manuscript, uh, now a book published with Alan and Unwin, her motivations in writing it and the craft behind it. Emma, welcome to Backstory. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's really, uh, I should first congratulate you on winning the award. I'm sure it's been quite a, a wild ride so far. Thank you, it has, yes. I don't think it's still sunk in properly yet. It's it's a really interesting um, experience, I'm sure, having uh, first written a manuscript and then suddenly to not only have it accepted for publication, but then to be sort of thrust into the limelight with this significant win. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience has been like? It's been certainly a whirlwind since it was announced and since the book has come out. It's been just a month now, I think. But I actually knew I had won since August last year. So I've been having to keep it a secret for a very long time, which has been hard. So it's a relief to have it out there and to be able to talk about it. But it's also after it having been so secret and so personal for so long, it's kind of jarring to have it now be out in the world in such a public way. Yeah, look, I I guess one of the really interesting things uh, about uh, an award like this is that it is really something that can be uh, a career starter, I guess. Had you thought that you would uh, seek, you know, I guess a career as a writer when you first embarked on writing this or were you really just so deep in in the writing of that book that you hadn't really thought about what it would mean if you actually won an award? I did think about it, but I genuinely didn't expect that this would happen and that I would win. And I think I'd always dreamed of writing as a career. I'd been writing for an online publication before, mainly personal essays, and I'd never written anything of this length before. But I was increasingly interested in writing fiction, and I'd written some short stories. And then when I found out about the Vogel, I decided I would just 
jump all in and try and write something of a longer length. And it actually, I was writing a completely different manuscript when kind of everything between my partner and I unfolded and I, I pivoted to this. And I think I just kept the deadline to just have something to work towards, not not thinking that this would be the story that might even win me an award and launch my career. So it's still, yeah, very shocking to me. Yeah, look, I, I think, um, I, I guess to really focus on this particular book as well. It's interesting to hear that, you know, certainly you were already writing something. And I do want to come back and pick up on that because mm-hmm. uh, we have a little bit of time together and I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring, um, you know, what you're thinking about your career as you move on from this. But let's talk about the book itself because it is uh, billed as, and, and this is something that you've also talked about, a work of autofiction. Uh, and as I explained at the top of this show, autofiction is a portmanteau of autobiography and fiction. It's a really interesting beast uh, and I do want to discuss why you chose to use this form rather than writing a straight memoir, for example, Um, and, you know, a little bit about the craft that goes into creating a work of autofiction. So firstly, to address the elephant in the room, which is that this is obviously, as you've said, a a work that is based heavily on your own um, lived experience. How then do you go about fictionalising that? And in fact, is it significantly fictionalised? I would say what I ended up with is something that's more true than not. And when I first started thinking about how best to tell this story, I initially thought about purely fictionalizing it and just taking elements of of what my experience was and my experience with my partner and shaping it into a just some other story. But as I thought about it, anything that I came up with that deviated from the truth just didn't feel as good or as powerful. So then I thought about memoir but it's not something I read a lot of and so I didn't have I guess a very strong idea or inclination of how I might write in that way but I've recently read two books that were autofiction which is something that I hadn't read before and they were Motherhood by Sheila Hetty and Crudo by Olivia Lang and they really blew my mind at the time I found them really challenging And I really liked the blurriness of truth and fiction and that space it created for the reader to even question what might be true and what might be fiction. So I I settled on that and I started off with that. And I, I really liked the idea of presenting it more as a fictional story. And I think the things that I blurred, you know, are are not very important to the core things that I wanted to explore but it gave me as the writer a little bit of distance from me the character if that makes sense to be able to craft that story. Absolutely and to give uh, 
listeners a bit of a sense of the book itself. This book is largely constructed in, you know, what appears to be diary entries uh, with some inclusion of long emails that are sent um, by the protagonist to their partner from whom they're becoming increasingly uh, estranged uh, as the as the work goes on. Um, so it's a really, you know, you are getting that very much that feeling of being solely in the author's uh, or the narrator's head. Um, their voice feels raw and as though it is happening in the moment. Um, and this is something that I did want to sort of discuss because something, I guess, um, which is a little bit of a <clears throat> an axiom, I think, when it comes to advice for people who are drawing on, on their real-life experiences you know, often writing teachers, and I'm certainly guilty of this myself, or I own that I say it, um, we would suggest to people to maybe let things sit before drawing on on material that has been very close to home or close to an extremely um, big experience or trauma uh, before kind of plumbing it for uh, creative uses. Um, I feel uh, certainly, and this is um, purely based on interviews that you've done and on things that you've said, that perhaps some of this was quite raw at the time that you were working on it. And I wonder what was that experience like working with material when it was still quite fresh and quite, you know, sharp in your in your memory. Yeah, it was difficult, and look, that's something that I thought about too. That. Uh, perhaps I should give it more space, but I found I I couldn't write anything else at the time, and that was just how my depression, I guess, manifested. So I found this was the only thing that I could write about because it was all that was swimming in my head. And some of the things that from the time period that I wanted to look at, I did have some distance from, and other things I didn't. But I knew that I really wanted this story to have a viscerality and an immediacy in it because I I can't remember what it was. It was a memoir that I had read and it did have a lot of distance. And as a reader, I could feel that emotional distance. And I think with that distance can come some clarity and power, but also I think you can have a sense of that distance and some of that kind of emotional punch is lost with the rationality of looking back. And I thought a lot about that, and I found that interesting. So I wanted to see what I could do and if I could balance it. And I guess it's not for me (laughs) to say whether I've done that successfully or not. But it was difficult, and sometimes... I just had to have a break because I found I could I could go back into that headspace very easily and that was very difficult. Other times when I felt a bit better, it was fine and I could write and it didn't touch me in the same way. So it really depended on my mood as to how easy it was or not. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Kretterberg, and I'm speaking with Vogel Prize-winning author Emma Batchelor about her book, Now That I See You. Yet yeah, talking about being very much in that, that raw space, one of the things that I would say uh, very definitely I experienced while reading this book was that, that kind of very uncomfortable sense that I was inside the head of someone who was really still trying to work things out, didn't have a sense of perspective, uh, was looping over things, was mired in the middle of it and I'm sure all of us who have had a messy breakup or um, tried to connect with someone who's not 
returning that connection has experienced something of this nature. And it was really interesting to sort of see how um, you decided to sort of let those things sit. Um, I think a lot of decisions can be made sometimes with works of um, moderated real life, I guess, uh, translated into fiction that feel more managed or feel more um, created. This very definitely felt raw on the page. Um, and I think it's a, a really interesting style choice that you've made with that. With that in mind, there is a question that I think obviously um, immediately comes to mind, and that is the decision to not really allow the um, you know the other character, the other main character in this this two hander, I guess, uh, Jess, the um, the person who um, is the partner in the relationship, um, really is only characterised by the primary voice. I mean, this is a very common technique, obviously, in all kinds of um, fiction. Um, particularly where you have a sort of first-person faulty narrator. I'm particularly interested, in, though, in how it was to see yourself, I guess, characterised as a faulty narrator in that context, in, in characterising both a an absent other but also in, in creating uh, the voice on the page itself. What was that, that kind of process like for you? Yeah, I'm glad that you experienced me <laughs> that way as a character and a narrator. Uh, Because that's something I definitely wanted to do and was interested in. I didn't include Jess's voice because at the time we were separated, we are together again now. And I didn't have her permission to include parts of her story in a more, um, I guess, in-depth way from her perspective. And I also didn't feel as a as a cisgender woman that I wanted to speak to a transgender woman's experience. I didn't feel comfortable with that. And I just liked the idea of the reader being able to, I think, gain a strong sense of Jess and what she might have been feeling, but to be able to question it because I'm questionable and you're only hearing it from my perspective. So I liked, I guess, this. The, the gaps that having it be more one-sided created and the more space there was for interpretation in making that choice. Mm. Do you wonder, I mean, again, um, because this, the viscerality of this is so apparent, it's hard not to to wonder how the, the author's feeling at the other end. So you've obviously laid on the page, that, your heart on the page, really. Um, mm. So it does occur to me, what what is that experience like of having it now reviewed or observed by others as a work of, uh, of fiction when it, it feels very strongly? And again, uh, you can correct me on the level of, um, you know, of your own creation and of the experiences that you had. What, what is that experience like, having that kind of criticism levelled at work that is so very personal? It's difficult sometimes but also interesting and I think that depends largely on (laughs) my mood at the time as well it's so interesting to see how people read me and read Jess and the things they project onto each of us and I think because I was so conscious of not trying to present my character in a certain way or as being good, because I would say that 
my character behaves very badly and a, a lot of the things that are in there are things that happened that I'm deeply ashamed of as a person. But I think they're real and that's what happens and glossing over them isn't helpful. But it puts me in a very vulnerable position to have people be able to judge me as a person and my actions and then me as a writer and how I've decided to put them on the page and shape them into a story. Mm. So, yeah, it's a very vulnerable position to be in. And sometimes it does hurt, but I just have to remember that this is one part of me and my story and it's not wholly me and my story. And so no one can really know to judge, really. I I want to talk about um, the restriction of leaving a perspective out or leaving a uh, a character out in the way that you have. And I understand the reasoning and, and it's uh, obviously um, an important thing to you and presumably also to your partner that you, you're true to that. But uh, what I find really interesting as a reader is that that there's both a sort of sense of frustration that you can't get the other side of it but also it does uh, allow you to kind of I guess use that as a crucible within which we can pour all of our anxieties I guess too (laughs) there's a few instances for example where there's an email that very clearly is in response I mean in fact Um, Many of them are in response to another email that you never see as a reader. Um, There was one that I think particularly was uh, actually an incredibly effective um, device in this respect where one was simply a one-line, I don't know how to answer that kind of response to an email, which immediately provoked a question of what what was said. Uh, You haven't used the authorial voice to then um, retell in every instance, in some instance, there's been a summary of things that were said or a precy of it, um, you know, but other times it's completely left out. How did you make those decisions to what to leave in and what to leave out? And was it done for a particular effect? Um, and what was that effect that you were trying to go for? <laughs> sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't. I had a really long list spanning years of kind of significant dates or significant events and real emails that we'd sent and text messages that I'd kind of kept and, and, yeah, made up a big long list of. And with each draft, I looked at what I thought would be good to include in the story, what I didn't feel comfortable including, what I knew my partner just absolutely wouldn't want me to include. So I kind of cherry-picked from that list to scaffold the story and then kind of, I guess, massaged and embellished things to, to create a more narrative arc. So some of the things... It just depends if it was something that I I know Jess wouldn't want people to know. And other times I think I was deliberately trying to create an effect. It's interesting now having to go back and try and analyse what I was doing at the time because I think a lot of it was instinctive and just a, a gut feeling that's worked or created an effect that perhaps I hadn't actively intended. But I think the the more drafts I did and the further on I got 
in the process, I became more aware of my ability to manipulate the reader's emotions and thoughts depending on what I did or didn't put in, which I found interesting. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Emma, I do want to pick up on uh, a few of the things that we were talking about earlier. Um, You know, one of the things that we discussed was uh, your partner's perspective uh, not necessarily being represented in the text. But one of the things that I found really interesting in, um, in, you know, preparing for this interview was that... uh, that your partner was being offered um, as a co-interviewee in certain circumstances. It wasn't something that that ended up happening in this instance. Um, But I was really interested in this from the point of view of, you know, you know, what goes into making a book and the idea of authorship and um, who is then represented in an interview. Uh, did you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I know uh, we discussed this off air a bit that your partner wasn't that keen necessarily to come and talk on air, but that also um, it seemed like an important thing to have as an opportunity. Absolutely. And when we first talked about it, it was something that she had considered And she has been such a big part of this story. Obviously, she's a character within it. And then also in supporting me and being involved through the editing process of the story as well. So it was something that she had thought about and we talked about. But as we just didn't know how we would feel about it when it all started happening. And I think she's much happier (laughs) to be behind the scenes now which I understand and is very fair. Um, but, it, yeah, it's it's tricky to, to be a part of indirectly all these conversations that are about her but not necessarily to be a participant. So, it, yeah, it's a funny, blurry thing. It's a really interesting thing, though, because I think that there's several schools of thought on writing um, autobiography or, in your case, autofiction, um, and that is, for some people, there's this feeling that this is my story and I own it and I can tell it, um, and that may include interactions with me. For others, there's a deep sense of ethics about appropriating other people's stories, and clearly that is a camp that you very heavily fall in um, in this particular instance to the extent of really... Um, you know, trying not to uh, to gauge or to create, I guess, a character um, based on someone who is real. Um, I, I, these are kinds of ethical issues that I guess everyone considers before they put out a memoir or something that's heavily based on their lives. What conversations did you find yourself having with the very, you know, because your partner wasn't the only real character represented in this, there were other people that um, that you did include um, and other perspectives that you might have touched on. What kind of work did you do? Did you talk to people? Did you consider these things ahead of time? And what was that process like? Absolutely. I, I, so a number of my family members and a lot of our friends are featured as characters in the story. So I, and I spoke to all of them about it and gave them an opportunity to read the manuscript before I submitted it to make sure that they were happy with how they were represented. All their names are changed, so nobody, except with the exception of my family, because 
it's not very hard to figure out who they all are anyway. <laughs> but certainly for my friends where we could, we've changed names. And some characters, like some of my work colleagues, are, are an amalgamation of multiple colleagues or some friends are a mixture of friends. So not all of them are directly based on real people. Some are, some aren't, but certainly... I, I talked with everybody and let them read it and made sure they were happy with how they were included. And I think personally that process was helpful for me to, to also communicate and convey what I'd been going through as a person during that time as well. So it was, yeah, kind of a double, a double benefit in that I got... To, to facilitate a conversation with the people in my life about my experience and also for them to, to participate in this work and to, to be in a story, which was exciting for a lot of people as well. Yeah. I, I do think that there are certainly some instances where I've thought that um, moving towards having co-authorship on, on works, particularly works that um, deal with subject matter that is you know, uh, that perhaps an own voices perspective would definitely benefit, um, that increasingly that talking about having the one person on the front cover can sometimes be a big discussion point um, about whether or not, in fact, uh, authorship is just the work of one person. And certainly mm. if I always go straight to the acknowledgement pages to sort of see how much detail is, is put in. But I guess in this instance, you've done quite a lot of work to try to feel as though uh, you were you know, hoving to your own, cleaving to your own perspective, um, that you were running things past people. Did that alter what ended up on the page significantly for you? I tried not to let it. I really, I did think a lot about with each draft, with what I included, specifically about my mental health, particularly my suicide ideation and the struggles I had with that. I didn't include things like that for a long time because I did feel wary of sharing those things and I guess I felt more afraid of people I know knowing those things about me than of strangers. But as I, I did share with more people and to let them know about the way that I'd included them and to see how they felt about it, I my shame about those things lessened and I felt more comfortable with including them. But I think it, it allowed me to be more open about some of the more taboo topics that I, I had worried about including. Some of the stuff about sexuality and sex that was more explicit as well. I mean, like having my mum <laughs> potentially be able to read that is hard. But they were all things that I struggled to talk about and other people I'm sure struggled to talk about that I wanted to be able to still represent. Yeah, and and should note that there, um, that, you know, trigger warning, there are things in this book that do deal with um, some quite um, big themes around mental health and obviously suicidal ideation and other things of that nature. Um, I, I do feel like, uh, you know, that 
that the great exposure in this book is really um, the internal workings of someone's mind. Uh, it really does feel like that is very much um, raw and on the page, this, these inner things that really we only tell our diaries, that perhaps we nice up even for our counsellors sometimes. I mm. felt like that was, that was really present. It gave it a sense, and I have to say, um, there are people who use uh, social media or, I mean, even something like LiveJournal to share you know, back in the day, to share their thoughts, um, blogs, etc., in a very mm. unmediated way. Um, were you kind of acutely aware of this um, this sense that it was this idea of that um, that bulk communication of um, of something that usually no one gets to see, playing with that idea of, of voyeurism of something before it's really cooked on the page in a way. Yeah, I did want to play with that, and I I found that really interesting, and I hope to create a sense of a trespass in a way, and that you are, are peeking at something that perhaps you shouldn't as a reader, or that to create a sense that it's something that the character might not have actually wanted <laughs> you to see or know. And I found that really interesting. And I think a lot of the the writing that I'm drawn to is very character-based and I am really interested in people and how they think and how they feel and what that means and how that interacts with everybody. So I I really liked that. And I did think about my relationship to social media because these are things that I never particularly talked about openly before. I had in my writing in longer form things, but never in a a social media context, really. But I did think a lot about the commodification of self and emotion and using my innermost stuff (laughs) as a kind of currency in a way. And I felt icky about it, but I also felt it was really important. So that's a very mixed bag Mm. for me as well, I think. Do you feel this a little bit? Because this is something that I think um, that particularly emerging writers or young writers are, you know, very much getting their first um, experiences as a writer or their first publication really being about intensely personal things. And mm. I guess the positive side of it has always been deemed to be that you're you're getting a, an authentic perspective as opposed to one that's um, that's someone you know a journalistic sort of you know, false objectivity and looking at a person as a subject, you're actually getting the voice of the subject. But the the downside of that is obviously that people who are dealing with quite acute things, mental health issues, um, you know, transition, things that are really, um, you know, a, a deeply personal and at times incredibly traumatic or difficult experience perhaps, and in others maybe affirming and wonderful, but um, still something that could put the author at risk in some way. Um, that these things are part of the business model, I guess, of a lot of publications increasingly or um, those kinds of things. How do you weigh that up, protecting the self while putting that stuff out there? Is that something you got advice on or that you sought advice on? No, actually. I do think about that a lot and I think you're completely right about the... I guess, yeah, like the capitalist structure of, of writing about the self. But I, I think I was really lucky in that in entering the Vogel, I, I had control over that narrative and what I wanted to share. 
and I entered it as it was and I was so incredibly fortunate that 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 I won and that that was um accepted by the publisher and then throughout the editing process I think I was very lucky also with the people that I worked with that I never felt that pressure to expose more or pull at any of those mm. particular threads but I think that does happen and I can see that happening so I think in my experience I think I've been fortunate that that I've had quite a degree of control over what I felt comfortable sharing and that that's been really respected. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Emma, talking about that process of being edited, what was that like? Because as you've said, this is your first significant work or your first book. Um, What was the experience of being edited like? I have no basis for comparison, so I don't know if it it was a standard one or not. But it was really interesting and I really valued it. I think having a work that was so intensely personal, it could be hard for me to be objective. So having the outside perspective of at first before I submitted the manuscript, my friends and family, and then after of editors and copy editors and my publisher, it really helped me. And especially having them not know me as a person, I think really helped in terms of the feedback process because that clouded a lot of the conversations about the piece of writing that I had with my friends and family. So I really enjoyed it and valued it and I can already feel how much I've grown as a writer for Mm. having gone through that process. But I guess, yeah, we'll see what happens next time and how how different it is. (laughs) Yes. Um, Now, I I really feel like I need to um, to, to just touch on this again because obviously this is a book that that was written um, about the end of a relationship and about the, you know, the incredible loss and grief and complex emotions and all very raw and and present. Um, So I think readers of this book will feel very much like they've been churning around in the narrator's head in your head perhaps um but of course as as you've mentioned throughout this interview you are once again um together with um the person who inspired this book Jess um and I wanted to talk a little bit about what that was like now what um you know you've mentioned that obviously um Jess has been a great support in for you around um the publication of this book and and was in fact um someone who could have appeared in in interviews if they chose um but I'm just really interested in in what what that's like now to to have this work as a document of a time in your relationship that was obviously enormously difficult for both of you It's really lovely from a personal perspective. (laughs) We're so happy that we have been able to find each other. And we hadn't had any contact. I think it was about seven or eight months when we ran into each other by chance on the street. And that was the the beginning of us coming back together now as two women. And it's just been so joyous really to have refound each other and and for both of us to now be in a in a position 
mental health wise and just emotional capacity wise to to hear each other and to work with each other and to to forgive ourselves for what we did <laughs> do and say and how we behaved and to forgive each other and I think we're so much better and stronger for it but since the book comes out it has it has been hard it's just another layer of of scrutiny in a way mm. and it can be really positive and sometimes it can be negative but it's so nice to be able to navigate it together yeah that's that's great and uh and a wonderful ending in both a um a major literary award publication and also obviously um your relationship sounding like it's it's strong um I, I do want to leave this interview by asking you what advice you would give to others who are thinking about submitting a manuscript to the award or even considering um, writing a book, whether it's an autofiction or anything else. Um, is there anything that you've learned that you would like to share with emerging writers? I think it's, I think the biggest thing I've learned is to just trust my gut and to go with it. Because I, I really wasn't sure if I should enter <laughs> the vocal with this work. And some of my friends and family had said, no, like, it's not ready, you're not ready. But I just had a feeling and I just did it anyway. And I, I just genuinely never thought this is what would happen. And maybe if I did, it would have <laughs> changed <laughs> what I wrote and how I wrote it. I think just having that that trust in your gut instinct I think can be good and I think a big thing for me has just been writing every day and just developing my practice whether it's just like making observations or even when I just write down what's happened today it's still writing and they're still playing with what you include and what you don't and how you write it, I think that's been really important to me and my writing that I know I can apply to other writing as well. And is there anything that you would have done differently, any advice you would give to your, you know, earlier self about what you were about to experience? <laughs> I think I'm just so glad that I didn't look too hard into the Vogel before I entered it or I would have been far too intimidated. <laughs> and I think... I don't know. I feel like the vulnerability and the things that I've I have been able to share is really powerful and I'm really glad I did include it. But I think if I'd known this is where I would have been, I would have been much more wary about including some of those things. And but I think it would have been to the work's detriment. So yeah, a bit of a <laughs> a mixed one there too. Well, Emma, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on Backstory to talk about your your book. Much appreciated thank the time. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.